Night number 14. The wind still wouldn't blow us across the Adriatic Ocean. About midnight, the sailor guys wouldn't think they come in near one land. They wouldn't drop one line, and when they find out that the water stay under 120 feet. After a little while, they wouldn't find out that the water stay 90 feet deep. They wouldn't come scared that the wind gonna pound us against the rocks. And they wouldn't put down four anchors for the stern, and when they prayed that the time come fast. The sailor guys wouldn't try for escape from the boat and when put their little boat down inside the ocean. They went act like putting down the anchors from the front of the boat. Then Paul went tell the captain and the army guys, if these guys no stay by the boat, you no gon' come out of this. So the army guys went cut the ropes for the little boat and went let that little boat go. Today is April 1st. And I guess I made a fool of myself by reading the Hawaii Pigeon version of the Bible for you right there. Isn't that fun? I had fun doing that. I hope I was accurate, but (laughs) chances are that I wasn't. So we are in the church stream today, reading from the book of Acts. And today we will complete the book of Acts. And I will start over using the God's Word translation, which is the translation we are using this week. Acts, chapter 27, verse 27. On the fourteenth night, we were still drifting through the Mediterranean Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that we were approaching land. So they threw a line with a weight on it into the water. It sank 120 feet. They waited a little while and did the same thing again. This time, the line sank 90 feet. Fearing we might hit rocks... They dropped four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for morning to come. The sailors tried to escape from the ship. They let the lifeboat down into the sea and pretended they were going to lay out the anchors from the front of the ship. Paul told the officer and the soldiers, If these sailors don't stay on the ship, you have no hope of staying alive. Then the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before daybreak, Paul was encouraging everyone to have something to eat. This is the fourteenth day you have waited and have had nothing to eat, so I'm encouraging you to eat something. Eating will help you survive, since not a hair from anyone's head will be lost. After Paul said this, he took some bread, thanked God in front of everyone, broke it, and began to eat. Everyone was encouraged and had something to eat. There were 276 of us on the ship. After the people had eaten all they wanted, they lightened the ship by dumping the wheat into the sea. In the morning, they couldn't recognize the land, but they could see a bay with a beach. So they decided to try to run the ship ashore. They cut the anchors free and left them in the sea. At the same time, they untied the ropes that held the steering oars. Then they raised the top sail to catch the wind and steered the ship to the shore. They struck a sandbar in the water and ran the ship aground. The front of the ship was stuck and couldn't be moved, while the back of the ship was broken to pieces by the force of the waves. The soldiers had a plan to kill the prisoners to keep them from swimming away and escaping. However, the officer wanted to save Paul, so he stopped the soldiers from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and swim ashore. 
Then he ordered the rest to follow on planks or some other pieces of wood from the ship. In this way, everyone got to shore safely. When we were safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The people who lived on the island were unusually kind to us. They made a fire and welcomed all of us around it because of the rain and the cold. Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire. The heat forced a poisonous snake out of the brushwood. The snake bit Paul's hand and wouldn't let go. When the people who lived on the island saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer. He may have escaped from the sea, but justice won't let him live. Paul shook the snake into the fire and wasn't harmed. The people were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But after they had waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. A man named Publius, who was the governor of the island, had property around the area. He welcomed us and treated us kindly, and for three days we were his guests. His father happened to be sick in bed. He was suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, prayed, placed his hands on him, and made him well. After that had happened, other sick people on the island went to Paul and were made well. They showed respect for us in many ways, and when we were going to set sail, they put whatever we needed on board. After three months, we sailed on an Alexandrian ship that had spent the winter at the island. The ship had the gods Castor and Pollux carved on its front. We stopped at the city of Syracuse and stayed there for three days. We sailed from Syracuse and arrived at the city of Regium. The next day, a south wind began to blow, and two days later we arrived at the city of Puteoli. In Puteoli, we discovered some believers who begged us to spend a week with them. Believers in Rome heard that we were coming, so they came as far as the cities of Appius Market and three taverns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and felt encouraged. So we finally arrived in the city of Rome. After our arrival, Paul was allowed to live by himself, but he had a soldier who guarded him. After three days, Paul invited the most influential Jews in Rome to meet with him. When they assembled, he said to them, Brothers, I haven't done anything against the Jewish people or violated the customs handed down by our ancestors. Yet, I'm a prisoner from Jerusalem and I've been handed over to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities cross-examined me and wanted to let me go because I was accused of nothing for which I deserved to die. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal my case to the emperor. That doesn't mean I have any charges to bring against my own people. That's why I asked to see you and speak with you. I'm wearing these chains because of what Israel hopes for. The Jewish leaders told Paul, We haven't received any letters from Judea about you, and no Jewish person who has come to Rome has reported or mentioned anything bad about you. However, we would like to hear what you think. We know that everywhere people are talking against this sect. On a designated day, a larger number of influential Jews than expected went to the place where Paul was staying. From morning until evening, 
Paul was explaining God's kingdom to them. He was trying to convince them about Jesus from Moses' teachings and the prophets. Some of them were convinced by what he said, but others continued to disbelieve. The Jews, unable to agree among themselves, left after Paul had quoted this particular passage to them. How well the Holy Spirit spoke to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit said, Go to these people and say, You will hear clearly, but never understand. You will see clearly, but never comprehend. These people have become closed-minded and hard of hearing. They have shut their eyes, so that their eyes never see, their ears never hear, their minds never understanding, and they never turn to me for healing. You need to know that God has sent His salvation to people who are not Jews. They will listen. Paul rented a place to live for two full years and welcomed everyone who came to him. Dear Lord, we bid farewell to Paul for now. Thank you for his inspiring life. Let us be encouraged to make our days count for you and for your kingdom. Amen. If you take an opportunity to get the map, it's either in the back of your Bible or we will put a link to it in the show notes, you can note the route of Paul's final missionary journey listed in Acts. The story picks up today before he is departing from Myra, the south point of Asia Minor, and the wreck in Malta. Paul took one ship from Caesarea to Myra, another from Myra to Malta, and a third from Malta to Puteoli, Italy. This month of Paul's life, he had the greatest challenges relating to natural calamity. The dramatic events seem like a cruise gone bad with storms, a damaged vessel, near death at every turn, a fear of starvation, prisoners escaping, painful dilemmas and decisions, and then people finally swimming to shore or getting there by clinging to a chunk of wood from the broken ship. Paul ministers to these men even in this setting, and they are all encouraged by his gracious deeds and dining with them. Well, I guess if we can use that word. Paul uses his status even as a prisoner to defend the incarcerated so that they are treated properly. Paul promised that all would reach shore and no one would be harmed, and that is what happened. In chapter 28, they discover that they are on Malta from the locals, and voila, the locals are so friendly. The snake in the fire incident merely verifies that God is up to something and Paul is soon revered. Paul is then given access to Publius, the leader, and his family, and Paul is used to heal his father. Soon others who are sick come and are healed. It's fascinating the way Paul makes the most of every opportunity for the gospel and advancing the kingdom. The final leg of the journey from Malta to Rome is on an Alexandrian ship. There is excitement to meet and be with Paul as believers were in many places throughout the Roman Empire by now. It was 61 AD. An entire second generation of Christians were growing up, and Paul was a celebrated and very honored man to the new believers. His teaching was priceless to them. His letters were prized more than gold by the early church. His writings became what we follow as most of the New Testament. Luke finishes the book of Acts at about this time. Paul did have impressive audiences to speak to in Rome. Most were encouraged. Some Jews converted through his teaching, 
and other Jews were only made more stubborn thereby. While he was in Rome, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and his book to Philemon. Paul was later acquitted of his charges later in AD 61 or early the next year. There is some information telling that Paul made a trip to Spain. We know he planned one in Romans 15:28. There is some evidence that there was another missionary journey Paul took to Greece and Asia Minor and Spain is mentioned. He wrote his letters to Timothy and Titus during these years between 63 and 67 AD. Paul's influence cannot be overstated in Christian history. Some have said that the Apostle Paul is the most influential person that ever lived for his explanations of Christ clearly changed the way the world thought. This effect seeped into the dealings of religion, commerce and business, education, administration, hospitality, civility, and the list goes on. Even honest secular scholars admit Paul's colossal effect on the world, and to think he had been adamantly opposed to Jesus and that Damascus Road experienced change his life forever. We should never underestimate when we go through a dramatic experience like that and the ripple effect that it could have on the people around us. And now we have come to the point in our week where we talk about the thread that we see running through the streams. And we see a few things that are running through the streams this week. One of them is the kingship of Christ. And it's interesting how we see in Genesis how it is established with Judah, that he would be the lion, that the scepter would never go away from him. And then in 1 Samuel, we see that the kingship is leaving Saul. Now, Saul was a Benjaminite. So that rule was never going to remain with the tribe of Benjamin. It was going to be with the tribe of Judah. And that's where David line is from, is from Judah, and the son of Jesse is anointed as the king. And he's not king yet, but he is going to be. So Judah to David, and then in the Psalms, there's always reference to the kingship, and it's actually David writing these Psalms, and reference to the challenges of somebody coming into their kingship, and it's not easy. And you see where Uh, David is just complaining about it a lot of times. He's talking about his enemies. And so there's always a challenge, but he always rests in the fact that God is the king. He's the earthly king, but he's only an extension of God's kingdom. So I, I like the way David describes that. And then in Isaiah, there's reference to God caring for Israel And he is the king taking care of Israel, and he does that through Jesus. He's not stated here, and there's no intense reference to Messiah, but that is something that that he does, that he takes care of his people. And then in Daniel, there is reference to kings in this, and he says that there will be a time that all these things that are sealed up to the end, but... Uh, there's a time where everybody's going to wake up and it's like the judgment, making reference to the judgment and Jesus is the one to preside over that. And then in Matthew, of course, we're talking about Jesus going to be crucified. And this is something that didn't make sense to the disciples at the time. They didn't realize that the son of man would be crucified. They just thought, here is our coming king. This is time to rise up and let's get rid of the Romans. I mean, it was one of those that they they had intense expectations. And it didn't come out the way the disciples thought it would. But 
when they realized it later, when they everything was revealed, it was clear in hindsight, they realized it was the only way that it could happen according to the scriptures. And now Jesus had conquered death and he is the king. And then this is what the Apostle Paul is describing to the Jews in Rome in the chapter in Acts. He is explaining according to the Moses teaching, according to the prophets, all these things that were said ahead of time, that Jesus is the fulfillment. And interestingly, that brings us to the next thread that I noticed weaving in and out of these streams, and that is the reaction of the Jews. Some embraced it, some loved it, and some did not understand. And see that scripture that Paul mentions? You will hear clearly, but never understand. You will see clearly, but never comprehend. So that happened through the streams as well. The Jews didn't understand what Paul was saying, or they did, some of them didn't embrace it. In Matthew, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Peter, especially, he thought he was going to stick with the Lord, but the Lord knew better. He, he could see that Peter didn't understand where things were headed. Daniel had a hard time understanding the visions that he was given, and he had to have those explained. And Isaiah, he's the one who actually said that the, his descendants, the descendants of the Jews would have trouble understanding. So there's that link. And then in Psalms, you see where David is having a hard time comprehending while he's having all these difficulties. That's why he's writing these Psalms. He doesn't understand why things are so difficult. And then in 1 Samuel, you can see where Samuel is downcast because Saul had been made king and he had anointed him and now he wouldn't follow the directions. And he just thinking this is the end, what's going to happen now? He's really bummed out. And God says, uh, why are you so downcast? Like, didn't you realize I would have another plan? <laughs> and so he was not understanding. And even in the process of going to anoint the next king, he would have gone with the oldest son of Jesse because he looked like a king. And God is still teaching him, you don't see what I see. I see the heart. You just see the packaging. And so that was another learning moment, another way to help us to understand that God's ways are above our ways. And then finally, in Genesis, I'm going backwards, I, <laughs> as you can tell. In Genesis, you see that Isaac is blessing Joseph's two sons. And he, Joseph doesn't understand why he is blessing the younger son with a greater blessing. He thinks his dad is mixed up, but his dad is saying, no, this is way, the way it's supposed to be. And sometimes we don't understand why are the firstborn sometimes passed over? Why is it sometimes the secondborn or the third or the lastborn? It doesn't make sense because the way we are taught is that you know, the firstborn is your strength and all of these things. Okay, well, and that's not to say that that's the way God works every single time in every family. But the whole thing is, is that God is always going to look at the inside. What is going on on the inside of this person, their heart, their soul, their mind? Are they dedicated and are they going to follow me? Are they going to follow the directions? And of course, that's the resounding cry throughout scripture. To obey is better than just fill in the blank. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than what you thought God wanted you to bring. Just do what he says. Now, that's an easy thing to say, and it's quite another thing to accomplish when you're in the middle of a temptation or a struggle 
or a situation where you think you can do this better than what God says. Anyway, God understands, and He will help us to understand. All we have to do is ask. SevenStreamsMethod.com is the home port for this podcast, and we'd be happy to have you share this program with a friend or a relative, and you can certainly put it onto a, a CD and hand it to somebody and share it that way. I've, I've known people to do that with podcasts, just put a few on a CD and share it with a friend. So by all means, please do that. I encourage that. And I just thank you for being a part of this program. I hope you had a little fun uh, in the Hawaiian pigeon version at the top of this program. And I just want to remind you, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. We will head back to the world stream tomorrow and finish Genesis. Until then, I'm Serena, sailing with you down the seven streams.